Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 Welcome to our wellness series. In these three episodes, we approach wellness through understanding movement, sleep, and mindset. We get a firsthand look at the latest research from professors at Stanford on these topics, and we're really excited to share some tips on how you can improve your wellness and health without feeling overwhelmed. In today's episode, the second in our wellness series, we talk with Stanford professor Jamie Zeitzer about sleep, and we learn how light and other factors influence this nightly routine. We also learn some tangible ways to improve sleep quality, something I know we all could use a little more of. And thank you to Wellbeing at Stanford and Stanford Recreation and Wellness for sponsoring this series. Hang tight through the end of the episode to learn how you can win a great nightstand book, Sleep Revolution by Ariana Huffington. All right, welcome back to Boom, everyone. We are so happy to be talking with Jamie Zeitzer, who is a research professor at Stanford in the Department of Psychiatry and has spent 25 years focusing on light, sleep, circadian rhythms, and conducted multiple clinical trials examining light therapy. He's been featured on some other podcasts as well, Sleep is a Skill, so shout out to that one where he gives some practical tips on how to improve your sleep. But we're really lucky to have him on Boom today. So Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thank you. We're excited to have you. We're curious, what first got you interested in studying sleep? Well, I, I wish I could say it was, you know, like a well-thought-out plan, um, but I, I kind of <laughs> fell into it. Actually, I, I started studying circadian rhythms, which kind of, you know, go hand-in-hand hand with, with sleep. And, and I think a lot of that had to do is I was always interested in behavior, mm. and I, I was a graduate student in neuroscience, and circadian rhythms, at least, is one of the very few, if only, behaviors that we actually understand what the, the neural origins are. I mean, it's the suprachiasmatic nucleus. That's it. You know, you take that out, you don't have these anymore. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of an overly reductionist approach, but that definitely got me interested in the whole area. And, and of course, I have terrible sleep. So kind of know thyself is a good motivator. Thanks for sharing that. It's always fun to hear where people come from in their journeys. We're wondering now, like, with all of the research that you've done, what is the role that light plays with regard to our circadian rhythm and sleep? What is that interplay and relationship? Yeah, so I'm a bit light-centric, but light is kind of the most important thing. So, you know, you have this internal (laughs) circadian clock. It runs at a near, though not exactly, 24-hour period, and it controls, you know, everything. And, And I do have to say that it's an absolutely fundamental process. If you look at pretty much every living organism on the planet has a circadian rhythm, even organisms that live less than 24 hours have circadian rhythm. So mm-hmm. there's got to be something wow. something fundamental about it. If evolutionarily speaking, basically, it's omnipresent. And one of the things it really allows you to do is to kind of anticipate things that are going to occur in the day. So instead of responding to changes in the day, you're able to anticipate it. So you're able to say, you know, if you're a nocturnal animal, you're able to kind of know that, oh, the sun is going to come up. Not that it is coming up already, in which case I'm probably, you know, going to be eaten by something, but it's going to be coming up so I can run back to my burrow before it gets light out. And so the way that, you know, these rhythms, for the most part, but not all, but for the most part, and definitely in humans, 
uh, become synchronized to the 24-hour days through light exposure. And we spend very little of our time in natural light. On average, Americans spend around 7% of their day outside. 93% is spent inside. You know, I have to say, when I looked at that day, I'm like, wow, that, that's kind of surprising. I'm like, well, California. People are outside in California all the time. <laughs> Actually, California is a little below average. And it's not just commuting. Wow. When they break it down by, you know, what people spend doing, you know, it's not just that they're spending more time in the car. So I got, it's people just don't spend that much time outside. Now, again, some people spend a lot of time, but in general, we don't. And so, you know, we're exposed to a lot of artificial light. And so understanding kind of how this artificial light kind of has an interplay with the natural lighting that we get exposed to and how that then synchronizes the clock and usually more to the point how that screws up the synchronization of the clock, you know, is something that that I've been very interested in, you know, for a long time. Yeah. So you said we tend to spend 7% of our day outside. Is there, do we know now if there's like a minimum or target goal of what percentage should we spend outside? And then what exactly is that interplay between the natural light and the artificial light, I guess, when we're having artificial light during the day, is that actually like making up for the light that we should be getting outside? Or is that negatively impacting, you know, our sleep and other our circadian rhythm? Great questions. Uh, you know, it totally can impact it in a negative way, mainly because if we just go to the straight numbers, right? If you're inside, if you're in a really well-lit office, it's maybe 500 lux, right? A normal office is going to be closer to 200. If you're talking about a house and a bedroom, you're closer to usually 90 lux of light. In the evening, you're usually a little dimmer than that, closer to 50 lux of light. You go outside on a overcast day, it's 10,000 lux of light. If there's no clouds, it's 50 to 100,000. So we're talking about orders of magnitude different being outside, right? It's not close. Now, again, we have a really bad ability to kind of judge how bright things are. It's how our retinas are constructed. We basically get rid of a lot of that information in terms of conscious perception of light. And so, you know, you're going outside. We, we unfortunately don't have a number. I wish I had a number. I mean, I'd say, yeah, if you go outside for half hour during the day, that's going to cure a lot of ills. And the reason is, mm-hmm. is that your circadian clock is very sensitive to light first thing in the morning and right before bedtime. This is when your system is very sensitive to light. So there's always been a lot of concern, like, well, the lighting that people are getting in their homes, you know, through devices, you know, through television screens, through computer screens, through tablet screens, phone screens, things like that, that's messing everything up. Well, the way that the system works is that it ends up being a relative system in the sense that if you get a lot of light during the day, the light that you get at night is less impactful. So if you're, say, I don't know, a graduate student and never leave the lab, you go in before the sun comes up. You leave when the sun goes down, you know, light at night is going to be more impactful. It's going to keep you up. Mm. You know, if you're able to go out, I remember when I was looking at grad schools, uh, I I came out to Stanford and there was a sand volleyball court right outside the labs. And I'm like, man, I can't come here. I'm never going to graduate. (laughs) So my next trip was to Boston and there was two feet of snow and it was still snowing. I'm like, this I can work. You're with. like, I'll get something done here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got six months, but there's nothing else to do at work. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you go outside for a half hour and that's really going to minimize a lot of that, the impact of that artificial light that you're going to get at night. Yeah. Um, that's helpful because I think sometimes the artificial light at night is unavoidable when we have 
things that we still need to get done at night. But it's nice to feel like, okay, maybe there is something that we can do to kind of balance that out a little bit rather than you know, just getting more stressed about it. I think sometimes then I'm like, I know I need to do this, but now I'm getting stressed out that I might have bad sleep. And then that probably affects my sleep even more. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, completely. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have to say, you know, there's been a lot of focus on light in terms of its effects on sleep. But, yeah. you know, to me, I'd say, check out the content. You know, if you're doing mm-hmm. things before bedtime, you know, I, I've got a clip that I love from the CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings, who this was on an earnings call. It's on um, YouTube. So it's totally publicly available. And he basically says that our biggest competitor is sleep mm. <laughs> because, you know, that's what the next episode is. Next episode, next episode. It, it's going to keep these things have been gamified, whether it's mm-hmm. watching Netflix, yeah. whether it's checking out your Instagram account, you know, whether it's playing, you know, video games. These are all been designed to keep your eyes on the screen. That's going to mess up your sleep. It's going to mess up your sleep. If you check out your email, like I don't check email that night anymore because the only emails I ever get at night are things like, hey, doctor, right, so here's this really stressful thing you can't do anything about until tomorrow. Have a good night. Why am I checking this? Yeah. So I'm like, all right, forget it. I'll just check in the morning. You know, it'll be probably less stressful in the morning and it's not going to completely screw up my sleep. So right. it's kind of being aware. And it's a time that you can actually do something. Rather than just sitting with it. Exactly. Yeah, stewing over it just doesn't help me. Yeah, yeah it's not even about yeah. the light at that point. That's just no, stress. not at all. It's just it's just induced all this stress. And I can tell you that's going to have much more of an impact. Mm. Are there other things? So you said so light and stress and also sort of this like con- all the content that we're getting. What other things play a big impact on how much we sleep we get or the quality of our sleep? Yeah, this is I mean, we've been super interested. We've published a few articles trying to figure out what impacts sleep quality. You know, if I say, you know, like, Melissa, how'd you sleep last night? Hannah, how'd you sleep? You have an answer, right? And biologically speaking, we have very little idea why you said that answer. Mm. And this is something that we're very curious about because once you figure that out, then you could actually try to manipulate those things. And the thing that we run into is we think that there's a lot of things that can impact any individual's sleep. You know, so for example... We've done studies in Stanford students, undergraduates, looking at caffeine intake. And basically what we found is they're so sleep deprived, it doesn't matter how much caffeine they have. It really had basically no impact on their sleep. They'd be like having like, you know, double shot of Red Bull at three o'clock in the morning and then go to sleep. Not a problem. Wow. Oh my gosh. This is just, they were very sleep deprived. And so that's the thing, you know, so there are things like, yeah, you should be wary. Caffeine generally can mess up your sleep. You know, it can, in fact, caffeine has a half-life that ranges anywhere from two to 12 hours. So if you are a slow metabolizer of caffeine, you have a cup of coffee in the morning, it's still going to impact your sleep at night, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a fast metabolizer, again, you can have a cup of coffee right before you go to bed and there's going to barely be any half hour later. And if you're sleep deprived, none of that matters. You know, if you've got a very regular schedule, that's going to help your sleep tremendously. A very irregular schedule, and it's going to be really hard to sleep. You know, basically, the way that sleep, the timing is structured, the more regular schedule, the more that the circadian system can basically anticipate sleep timing. The circadian system has a very strong signal for wake in the hours before normal bedtime. It's what helps us stay awake for 16 hours. And so if you normally go to sleep at 11, it's really hard to go to sleep at 9. And if you travel and you travel eastward and try to go to sleep at the same clock time, this is what you're running into, Mm. is you're trying to go to sleep and the circadian system is telling you to be awake. And so 
the more irregular your schedule is, the more random that time is going to be and the more likely it is it's going to interfere with your sleep. You know, things like exercise can also both help and hinder sleep depending on when the exercise is timed. You know, if the exercise is too close to sleep, it's going to impact sleep in a negative way. If it's really far, it's not going to do anything. And there seems to be a sweet spot in different people in terms of how much exercise mm -hmm. you're getting. Probably, we don't know, but it's probably through thermoregulatory mechanisms. So basically, one of the things that really helps sleep is, is dumping heat. You know, so if you're sleeping in a room that's too hot, it's hard to fall asleep. If you've just exercised and now you're dumping off heat and basically cooling your brain, that's really helping uh, sleep onset. Mm. As I heard to take a warm shower, maybe like an hour before bed can also affect that thermoregulation. It can. I mean, the old advice, which is totally true, but no one would ever do this if they can avoid it, is you actually take a shower and don't dry off. And then what? you get into bed and then you cool. And basically you're going to spend a lot of energy cooling off because you've got the water on you and it's going to spend a tremendous amount of energy trying to raise the temperature of your skin. And that's going to move heat away from your brain and be very helpful. But really people hate it. I mean, it's. And then you sleep in a soggy bed after. Like, yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah, you, you're basically going to sleep in a sauna at that point. I mean, <laughs> But yeah, so, you know, again, thermoregulatory, especially, you know, hey, look, we just went through our lovely June heat wave, you know, 100 degree weather. Mm -hmm. Again, it's going to be hard to fall asleep if you can't get rid of heat, because one of the hallmarks of sleep onset is basically your brain temperature goes down. And in order for your brain temperature to go down, you have to be able to lose heat through the periphery. And if it's too hot out, you can't do that. And so, again, that's something that that can be very helpful. What about food intake? Like I've heard you shouldn't eat in some X amount of hours before sleeping. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. So, I mean, it can definitely cause problems in sleep. You know, if you're eating right before sleep, you know, it's true. Elementary function goes down during sleep. So, you know, you're not going to process it. And if you've got problems with reflux, it's going to come up the throat a little and cause burning. So, yeah, there can be lots of negative aspects of that. I mean, the other thing, too, is when it comes to food is that, there is a separate pacemaker that, that's under supervision of the SCN uh, that's in the liver that allows you to anticipate different food timing. If you're eating at weird times, that can also mess up sleep. So basically, if you normally have an evening snack and then you don't have your evening snack, that can also mess up sleep because now your body is ready for that glucose and you're not getting it. And your body's anticipating it and it's structured how it releases you know, its glucose and glycogen it's basically prepared for that infusion and it doesn't get it. So again, the regularity of it can be very important. And again, it's why sometimes when you're traveling, it can help disrupt sleep is if, if your meal timing is not you know, properly regulated. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm also curious about like, you talked about having a regular schedule and like how sensitive is that? Is that like going to bed five minutes within the same time every night? Is it like, you know, can you get away with like a half hour? And why are we so sensitive to these changes, like, wouldn't it be more advantageous for our bodies to be a little bit more adaptable to small changes in our patterns? Yeah. So I have to say, we have a certain degree of flexibility, especially given the, the totality of light to which we're exposed. You know, mm -hmm. I'd say, you know, plus minus half hour. So if you had an hour window, that should be sufficient. Mm -hmm. Evolutionarily, we didn't have artificial light. You know, so evolutionarily, you had basically the sun rising and setting, maybe fire, but 
not a huge amount of, of variation. So it's not like, well, I'm just going to turn on the light and be up for an extra <laughs> six hours. Like I have something due tomorrow, so I'm going to be up until three in the morning. Or, you know, I'm out with my friends and, you know, we're at a bar and exposed to light. So again, there are many more opportunities to screw it up that I have to say we're definitely not, if we thought, use the, the parlance, you know, thought of in terms of evolutionary adaptation. So yeah, I mean, you know, within an hour window is totally flexible. And again, some people, they're going to have more sensitive sensitivity to others because really it's not just the, the timing of sleep, it's the light that you're exposed to. So if you're exposed to, again, a lot of light during the day, you're going to have a lot more flexibility. So the main lighting that's going to synchronize you and keep you synced is that morning light, right? So if you can basically have a good wake up time and get a lot of light when you wake up and then you minimize the light when you go to sleep, you can have more variance in terms of bed timing and you'll still stay synchronized just fine as long as you're waking up at the right time. Now, of course, if you do that, you're going to have insufficient amounts of sleep. And, you know, one of the things that, that we're very curious about that we just don't know the answer, you know, right now, the public health recommendation, which I happen to disagree with because I think it's counterproductive, is to say you need eight hours of sleep every night. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, that's a terrible recommendation because, yes, it's true. Most humans, some actually between seven and eight hours is probably kind of the, the peak of the bell curve. That's what they need. But telling people that can actually be counterproductive in a public health setting because then they go, oh, I can't do that. I can't get seven, eight hours every night. So screw it. I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'll get three hours some night, four hours, whatever. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like a diet. If it says you have to do this diet and it's the only way to do it, it's like, all right, well, I, I can't do that. So I'm just going to eat whatever, mm-hmm. which is kind of the opposite of what you want to engender. You, you want to engender better behavior. So again, not perfect behavior but better behavior. And so, you know, what we're exploring, trying to figure out is, well, you know, if I were to say like, oh, this isn't true, but if it were, it'd be useful. Like, well, if you got like one out of every three nights, that would get you to like 90%. You'd be like, oh, okay, I could do something like that. You know, I I can make sure that one out of every three nights. And if I said, well, and one out of every four was 70% efficiency, then you go, oh, well, that's a big difference. I'll make sure that it's one over three and not four because mm-hmm. that's a big difference. Again, we need to develop that data set and we need to develop that information because, again, otherwise, we just don't have very good advice because, unfortunately, people tend to get competitive with sleep in the wrong yeah. way. So it's not like, oh, hey, I got eight and a half hours of sleep last night, you know, and that's my sixth night in a row. No, it's like, hey, I only got four hours of sleep. Hold on while I have my third cup of coffee because (laughs) I'm so non-functional without it at this point because I'm so sleep deprived. That's typically how people, you know, respond to these kinds of challenges. Again, not in the right way, but I don't think we have very good information on what actually to recommend. That's a really interesting point that we were thinking about too. Like culturally, it seems like there's sort of this badge of honor for actually not meeting that eight hours or recommended eight hours. And that seems to be the norm, especially you're saying Stanford undergrads are super sleep deprived. And it seems like in the Bay Area, that is also a a thing. So we're wondering what are your thoughts on this as an expert? Are there things culturally, like you're saying, maybe changing regulations or recommendations on how we can change these habits? I wish that information was useful. It's often not. (laughs) There are big cultural differences. You know, as you mentioned, in the Bay Area, there's definitely, especially in the tech industry, this entire vibe of, you know, get less sleep, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Yeah. (laughs) At least once a year, I have someone coming to me with this idea about how to improve sleep. 
And what they mean by improved sleep is how to get less sleep, but feel like you got more, <laughs> which is great, but, you know, nothing's worked so far. You know, there's no way at this point that if you actually need seven and that you can get it in five. You know, there are also cultural differences. We've looked actually at at teens and parents and compared uh, teens and parents in the Bay Area who I have to say are pretty competitive and with teens and parents in Taiwan. And, you know, you ask like the parents like about the kids and the kids sleeping patterns. And you say, well, they fall asleep in class. And they're like, yeah. And the parents in Taiwan are like, yeah, they fall asleep a couple times a week in class. And then you're like, well, and do you worry about that? They're like, no, that means they're working hard. That's good. And the parents here are like freaking out. They're like, oh, my God, they're falling asleep. They're not getting enough sleep. So, again, there are big mm-hmm. cultural differences. But in order to do that, how do you convince someone to say, well, you know, if you want to do better. And, again, we can do this one-on-one. We can totally do this. If I have a you know colleague of mine who is you know skilled in behavioral sleep therapy, sit down with a person one-on-one. They can usually convince them why getting more sleep is better for them. Like, here's why an hour more sleep is more beneficial than an hour more studying or an hour more socializing, you know, is that, you know, the sleep's going to improve your athletic performance. It's going to improve academic performance. It's going to improve, you know, socialization. So you want more dates. You want to get better grades. You want to perform better in the track meet. Great. Here's how sleep's going to do it and why that extra hour of sleep is important. One-on-one, again, we can do it but we just don't have a good public health message to get out there to convince people en masse how to do this. And again, I'm hoping that more data is helpful, but I'm pessimistic having seen how people respond to data in the pandemic. People pick and choose what data they want to read and pay attention to. Yeah. I think there was a recent study, I think, of maybe 20 people. I I was talking to some friends at dinner, and I don't know the details of it, but I remember my friend saying that there was a study where they looked at neurosurgeons and people who don't do neurosurgery. And they said that people who are who do neurosurgery can actually function better with less sleep. Uh-huh. But it was only 20 people. And they were like, I think that, you know, if someone wants to be convinced that they can get better or perform just as well with little sleep, you know, you can then pay attention to studies uh, like well, that versus, you know, yeah. more like. That's the problem. There's, there's a big disconnect though between <laughs> subjective and objective. So if you're in a position where you are routinely asked to be sleep deprived, right? Like a neurosurgeon mm. or you're a long distance truck driver, you know, or you're, you know, an airline pilot, all of these professions, right? If you ask them how tired they are, they say, I'm not tired. It's a badge of honor. So basically, I mean, honestly, when if you're in medical school, they're so sleep deprived for the most part, even with the new rules. You know, you basically have two choices. If you're working like an overnight shift, you know, you're working a, a 24-hour shift, or you're working the overnight, you have two choices, right? One is you can be miserable and work it, or you can kind of inure yourself to the psychological component. So many people inure themselves. So they basically, it's kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, when you learn how to swim, you learn how to hold your breath. You're basically starting to ignore that signal that says, well, you need to breathe. You know, you, you, you need mm-hmm. to get rid of this carbon dioxide. So you learn how to ignore the signal. You can do the same thing with sleep. Now, it doesn't mean you perform any better. So that's the problem with the neurosurgeons. They think that they're not sleepy and they're not tired, right? They don't feel tired at all. But if you went in and objectively tested them, 
you would see that they perform just as poorly as anyone else. So the question Mm -hmm. is, is that do you want an airline pilot flying at night or a neurosurgeon performing surgery in the middle of the night? Is it worse or better for them to not realize how tired they are actually performing? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I don't know if I want someone who's really doing that, not realizing that they're actually exhausted in doing this. Mm -hmm. So again, now, of course, the question is, is that when you're doing this stuff, you try to put in fail safes, you know, so I don't know if you, if you remember a couple of years ago, there was a um, Asiana plane that crashed its SFO and it basically missed the runway. It clipped the runway flying in. And when you looked at it, it's like, it made no sense. Like it was kind of in the middle of the day. Like why did they miss the runway until you looked and you said, well, actually the pilots who were flying, I, I think they were flying from Incheon in South Korea, their home time zone where they came from, their internal clock was at 3.30 in the morning. So they were trying to land this plane in the middle of their night, which is really hard to do. So again, you try to schedule things that, that you don't do stuff like that. But again, you might not feel tired, but you will perform poorly when you're that tired. So again, I don't know what you want. I, I think I'd rather have my surgeon realize that they might not be optimal. So maybe they have to spend yeah. a little extra time doing this. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Maybe there'll be some ways in the future to kind of have more objective tests that you can do yourself at home to know, you know, sort of your your sleep level. Because even driving, you know, sometimes is not very safe when you're sleep-deprived in it. Sure, there's other things where if you had a quick way to just like test that and then say, okay, it'd probably be better for me to like take a nap or, Yeah, people have been looking for that, a a breathalyzer for sleepiness. But yeah, we, have, exactly. we, we haven't found it yet. But yeah, otherwise it'd be great, you know. But yeah, people all the time driving, you know, let me put it this way. Anytime you see in the news an accident, early morning accident, single vehicle, road curve, they didn't. Mm. It's not always, but usually that's the person fell asleep. Mm. And you have a lot of drowsy driving accidents. And Bill DeMent, who passed away for many years, he, he invented the field of sleep medicine. And this was his mantra, you know, drowsiness is red alert just to help prevent people from getting in the car when they're drowsy because it's so easy to fall asleep when you're driving. Mm-hmm. Speaking of a metric, just quickly add, I remember a presentation a couple of years ago from a researcher, I think it was Tim Altoff and at Stanford, yeah. and he correlated like typos and texting with yes. somehow sleepiness and also relating that maybe to car accidents or, or something like that. Yes, yeah, so, Tim and I worked on that together. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So this is trying to figure out, like, how could you tell someone is sleepy kind of thing without testing them? Mm-hmm. And so we looked at Microsoft Bing search data. Oh, And yeah. when you type in in the search bar, and I had no idea they collected this data. And to me, it's, it's absolutely insane that they have all this data. But they know every key that you press and how long it is in between each keystroke. And so you can basically figure out typing speed from that. And then we looked at that and... and correlated that with sleeping patterns in thousands and thousands of individuals who also were wearing a Microsoft band at the time, which was their kind of like their tracker that Microsoft had kind of like a a Fitbit. And then so what we found is that, yes, that you could see these millisecond differences in typing speed corresponded to differences in sleep. And then what he went on and did is he took a look at that and said, okay, well, we can kind of reduce this down to a median typing speed, just given the pattern. And then he looked at these typing speeds by county level. So it kind of like at the typing speed, like how fast does this county type at? That kind of thing. <laughs> and then looked at accident records from Department of Transportation and basically found that at the county level, 
counties that were slower typers and presumably a little more sleep deprived actually had higher rates of accidents. So yeah, so this is something that people have done this. They tried to use pupil dynamics and eyelid closure to determine this. So basically, if you have a camera on the eye, uh, the more time your eye is drooping down and, and kind of closing, the more tired you are. Problems that that's really hard to, and I think at least one car company has that, but it's really hard to put into a car because, well, there's a difference in driver heights. So having a fixed camera when you have drivers that could be four feet tall or seven feet tall, that's a bit of a range. And they're also dependent on infrared radiation to detect the pupil and the eyelid. And that's really hard during the daytime. You can do it at night, but during the day, it's really hard. So anyway, you know, people try this and, and people have tried looking at like, you know, people's heads kind of nodding off like this or different movement Mm -hmm. in the steering wheel. People have tried and and they're okay, but there are no fail safes. And I guess until we have our our driverless cars, this is kind of what we're stuck with. And unfortunately, it's a big risk. It's something that I I think that we've, many of us have experienced, especially, you know, long, boring trips home. And I have to say, I can pretty much guarantee anyone who's driven has had the experience of you get home especially after a trip that you normally take and you get home, you're like, I have no memory of that trip. Mm. I just got home and I don't remember stopping at a stop sign, stopping any lights, you know, no memory at all. And that's because basically your brain started flitting in and out of sleep during that trip and you just didn't make those memories. So it's not that you didn't stop or that you weren't mostly awake, but wouldn't say that you were necessarily fully awake. Now, if the police car behind you put on their siren, that might have woken you up. <laughs> yeah, that would be one wake up call. Uh, I don't know that I would want to get. Yeah, it would be nice if cars and you know, we start to have more of that integration too, where like you can detect it and give some sort of signals. But yeah, Completely. this is so fascinating. We've really enjoyed learning so much from you about sleep and We've learned actually, I think along the way, just a lot of practical tips that you've suggested, like getting more sunlight during the day, having more regular sleep schedule, exercising at the right time, showering before bed and not drying off. There you go. <laughs> Always practical tips. <laughs> Very practical and limiting screen time. Is there Are there any other practical tips? One that, that I've heard is to limit overhead light use near the evening. And you even mentioned that we're more sensitive to maybe light like in the morning and end of the day. So I've even heard like watching the sunrise or sunset might be helpful. Are there any other tips that you find useful, but also maybe easy to integrate into our daily lives? Sure. I mean, definitely the the morning light is great. If you can get up and get good exposure to morning light, that's going to help a lot. Go out for a walk in the middle of the day, half hour, that's going to help a lot. And I think that's easier to do than to tell people, well, you know, you shouldn't read that book because you're getting light. Mm. Well, if you got that half hour of light in the middle of the day, then that light that you're going to read by, it's just not going to be that strong. Unlike some colleagues of mine, I am definitely not such an absolutist when it comes to evening light exposure. I think it's okay. You just have to be a bit aware of it and also be aware that a lot of the electronic devices that we use emit light that you don't consciously perceive, but has an impact on this system. So basically the the shorter wavelengths, the bluer light, you don't perceive that quite well, but the system that is especially involved in regulating alertness is definitely more sensitive to it. And that's one of the reasons some people put on these screen filters, kind of like night shift or or F-Lux. And again, 
those can work. And I've actually had an ongoing debate with the developer Flux, which is one of the older ones that changed screen. And the debate basically is whether it's actually the screen color changing that's helping people fall asleep, which would be his contention. And it's a reasonable contention. But I actually think it's more of a psychological trigger, mm-hmm. which is that you're on your device you're doing something and all of a sudden the screen changes. And it's just a reminder, you know, hey, time to go to sleep. Because a lot of times we do things, we don't intend to stay up until three o'clock in the morning. It's just, I got one more thing to do. And then you get sucked down the rabbit hole and yeah. it's now it's three. <laughs> I definitely think that people, it would help them to kind of be a little aware and it's tricky, but to be a little aware of kind of how, what they're doing and how it can impact their sleep. And they, we're trying to automate this. Because again, the more you can automate it and, and make it seamless, the, the more likely it is that, that it can help people. But, you know, for example, like I'll play a game before I go to sleep, right? And it's usually something like solitaire or something like that. Something really, you know, mellow, low-key, or, or, or I like doing the crossword before going mm-hmm. to sleep. Again, it's just something that distracts me. It's mindless and helps me wind down. Other people, though, they'll play a game and it really amps them up. Right. And then they can't fall asleep. So, again, being kind of cognizant of, you know, what is going to kind of get you more agitated or stressed out. And I wish there were like, oh, you absolutely can't do this and you absolutely have to do this. But there's really interpersonal variation. I mean, some people I know, I mean, they're strange, but they check out their email before they go to the bed and like, oh, I have an empty inbox. I can go to sleep peacefully now. Like, who the hell has an empty inbox? That's just disturbing. <laughs> but this is what they do. The classic thing in behavioral sleep medicine is, you know, some people love writing lists before they go to sleep. Because you write down a list and then you see, ah, these are the things I have to do tomorrow. And then you're fine. And otherwise, mm-hmm. when you go over them in your head, you start to perseverate. And like, oh, I've got this and I've got this and I've got that. And then you loop back. You forgot you already worried about that. And you start worrying about it again. And then... You just can't stop worrying about all these things you have to do tomorrow. And then you write down, you're like, oh, it's actually a finite thing. I I can deal with this. Mm -hmm. Other people write a list and they're like, oh, my God, I'm never going to be able to finish this tomorrow and Mm -hmm. totally stresses them out. So, again, it's very dependent on kind of your personality, what relaxes you before sleep. And I see the other thing, too, which which we didn't mention is, you know, there is this thing called chronotype, which is that different people have different proclivity for different times of day. Right. So some people are early morning people, some people are late night people. Most people fall in between these extremes, but you definitely have people who are night and morning. And unfortunately for evening people, the the late night people, we don't live in a society that is very kind to late night people. Mm -hmm. So if you are programmed to go to sleep two, three in the morning, well, you still got to be at lab at eight o'clock. If that's what the PI says. I'm a nice guy. I, you know, we, we have, I, you can show up at 11. I, I've had people here who used to sleep from like yeah. two o'clock in the morning till 10 in the morning and then come in at 11. Like, that's fine. But a lot of times yeah, that doesn't work. It doesn't work for school. I guess if you're an English major, it works. But, you know, for most science majors, you know, you got that eight or nine o'clock class in, in the morning. So. Right. How much do you think of that is what we're used to versus what like innately we're yeah. better off with because i know me and my mom are more early people and then my dad and my sister are night people and we're always just like we'll just go to bed early and then waking up early won't be <laughs> an issue yeah. but maybe that's a little bit insensitive if you know it really is that i wouldn't say it's insensitive i'd say it's wishful thinking <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah unfortunately it, it is both innate and changes with age 
So, you know, this is what a lot of parents don't realize, like as their kids become preteens and teens, there's a natural latening that we don't understand biologically why it happens. It's mm. associated with puberty, but it definitely happens. And so kids that were going to sleep at like nine o'clock also now go to want to sleep at 11. And it's not just that they've got a cell phone with them and have stuff to do. This is a biologically programmed thing that, that you are supposed to go to sleep later. And same thing happens on the other end. If you look at older individuals, they start going to sleep a little earlier. So maybe their whole lives, they stayed up until, you know, 12 o'clock and now they want to go sleep at 10 or 11. These things do change. But that being said, if you're a morning person, you're a morning person. If you're an evening person, you're an evening person. That doesn't seem to change. There was just a study that came out that basically said that maybe if you take these drugs, you could change it. I, I don't know if I'd want to go down that road. That's a long way. That was in a, in a rodent. But maybe, maybe someday we can change it. But at this point, you're kind of stuck. And now, again, there's flexibility. Most people aren't extreme. So, for example, I used to typically go to sleep at, you know, between 11 and 12. But when I had kids, all of a sudden, they don't want to keep that schedule, especially because <laughs> they have my wife's genetics, who's a very early riser. And so I shift my schedule again. So now instead of, you know, going to sleep at, you know, between 11 and 12, it's more like between 10 and 11. My wife's more like between eight and nine if she has her brothers. So, <laughs> And my son, who's 15, he gets up at six o'clock in the morning. That's only because we tell him he's not allowed out of his room until after six, because otherwise he'd be getting up at five. Now, that's <laughs> weird. You know, most 15-year-old boys are not no, getting up not at 6 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've got a colleague up at UCSF who's studying his genetics. I mean, it's a strange <laughs> thing. So, <laughs> but again, there's definitely a genetics component. There is some flexibility in a lot of people. But if you're normally going to sleep at, you know, 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, you're not going to all of a sudden be able to routinely go to sleep at 2 or 3 in the morning. And just like if you're routinely going to sleep at 1 or 2, you know, you can force yourself to switch to an earlier time because you have to get up at seven o'clock in order to get to school on time. But you're going to be fighting it the entire time. And, and we actually, we did a study, and now it's a couple of years ago, where we actually have taken teens and basically using this passive light therapy where we give them brief flashes of light while they're sleeping. And it kind of goes through the eyelids and changes their, their brain time. We've basically moved them to a different time zone. So their brains are in Denver while they're living in San Francisco. And so now if they're getting tired at one in the morning, it's only 12 o'clock locally. So it's one o'clock brain time in Denver, but 12 o'clock local time in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. So you can play around with stuff like that, but it's permanent. That's why it has to be passive light therapy. You have to do it every single night. Otherwise, they're just going to revert right back to their natural tendency. This is the, the issue. So, yeah, I have a little more sympathy for family members who might not be early morning people. And, you know, that when you have to get to the airport at, you know, at 7 a.m. to get that early morning flight, that they might be less happy yeah. than you are to be up at that time. When my family travels, my daughter and I, we're awake, but we're not happy to be awake. <laughs> my boys and my wife, at 5 a.m., they're like, let's go. We're ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know we're excited to go on this vacation, but let's tamp down the enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's fine to be one or the other, but it's the mix that's hard. It's it's tough. It is tough. I have to say, it does make child rearing easier when they're babies, because it means that when my kids were very little, 
I would stay up until like one or two in the morning, not a problem. My wife would take over at like, you know, four or five in the morning. It was just that in-between time that no one wanted. And we hoped yeah. <laughs> that, that the babies would be asleep at that point. Then you have an advantage, but that kind of temporal separation can be helpful or, or not so helpful. <laughs> Something to look for in a partner. <laughs> yes, yes. Sometimes it's it's helpful to have that kind of, you know, you have your own space. So like in my family, like my wife, she has the early morning hours. It's her time, you know, and then at night I've got it. And so when the kids are littler, she definitely did more. And now I get to stay up late worrying about, you know, is my daughter going to come home at a reasonable hour? You know, <laughs> my wife's asleep. She's like, no, no, this is all yours now. You know, you're, you're the night person. Well, Jamie, I feel like we could talk to you forever. This has been so interesting. And I appreciate you sharing, yeah, like all of your experiences, your advice, your tips, your thoughts. And I appreciate that it seems like at the core of a lot of it is just knowing yourself and kind of being yourself and embracing that and being gentle with it, which I think is really crucial to like all of our well-being. So we really appreciate that. I think so. I think so. This is, uh, what is it, o- over the Oracle of Delphi, you know, if I mispronounced the Greek, it's something like noti teotan, you know, know thyself. Mm-hmm. So we, we've known this for a long time. It's just, you know, <laughs> easier to say than do. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you guys so much. I really appreciate the work that you're doing here, you know, getting out the good word on uh, on health and and I think different ways of getting this information, as I said, charts aren't going to do it for people. Those, uh, sadly, I wish everyone was as data-oriented as, as I am, but <laughs> it's, it's just not happening and not true. Now we yeah. just need to condense this all this down into a TikTok video. And I was then just going to say, we need TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just need to add a little dance to it, and then, yeah, we'll get, we'll get the message out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was talking to some high school students, and apparently TED Talks are now too long. TikTok is the only length of video that they can watch. Well, we're going to need to do some trimming, I think. (laughs) We hope you learned as much as we did in this episode. Jamie shared some awesome tips for improving sleep quality. I think that I'm going to make sure that I get some extra sunlight in the morning. What are you going to do? I think I'm going to do the showering before bed mm-hmm. and then not drying off. Mm, I love that for you. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I think I'm just going to try to make my bedroom cooler before I go to bed. Awesome. So we want to encourage you to try something new to improve your sleep. So if you do, let us know either on Twitter or Instagram with a post or on your story, making sure to tag us at Biomechanics OOM. And 12 lucky people will win a copy of Sleep Revolution by Ariana Huffington. And it's a really fantastic book. We took a read through ourselves and learned a lot. So I think you'll really enjoy this book. It won't put you to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) But if it does, you should just enjoy that sleep. Yeah, both are good. (laughs) Well, we hope that you learned a little bit about wellness today and that you feel empowered to help yourself and others live better. We'd like to thank the International Society of Biomechanics, the Stanford Neuromuscular Biomechanics Lab, the Catalyst Project on Motivating Mobility, where you can learn more at motivatingmobility.stanford.edu. We'd also like to thank Wellbeing at Stanford, Stanford Recreation and Wellness for supporting Boom, as well as Peter Washington for all of the music that you hear. 
Yes. Thank you to everyone. And thank you for listening. You can follow Boom at BiomechanicsOM on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can email us at BiomechanicsOnOurMinds at gmail.com if you have ideas or feedback or just want to say what's up. We are here to talk. So thank you for listening. And Biomechanics Off Our Minds. minds.